The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Tomorrow, Lord, eternity past to eternity future. Lord, we, we come to you um, as a church. Lord, perhaps some of us aware of our need to you or need for you. Um, Lord, perhaps some of us uh, not aware of that. Lord, I pray either way that you um, would use this psalm, you'd use this text to draw us to you. Lord, would you uh, lift our voice up to cry out Lord, to give us assurance that you hear our voice. So God, we, we come to you asking that you would speak through your word. Lord, asking that you would take my uh, small, insignificant words and help them point to true, eternal realities of who you are and, Lord, who we are to you. So Lord, be with us this morning and would you glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. As a kid growing up, I had a recurring type of dream that involved me getting eaten by some kind of animal. Some, sometimes it was a tiger. Sometimes it was a, a crocodile or alligator. Um, and once I got eaten by a horse, and that was weird. But for some of these dreams, I experienced a, a strange phenomenon that I couldn't articulate or verbalize a cry for help. It was like I was mute. It's like my voice was suppressed. And something was preventing me to get the words out of my mouth, help. And that was scary, especially as, as a kid. I desperately wanted relief from this pervasive fear and threat right before me. And in wanting relief, nothing. I couldn't get the words out. What made it kind of strange is that during one of these dreams, I was actually able, with all my willpower, to yell help. And it was at that moment that I realized my physical body, not my dream body, was actually saying verbally, help. <laughs> and it woke me up, startled by what was actually going on. I share this not so that you can psychoanalyze my childhood and my deepest fears, though I was a fearful little lad, uh, but I share this to illustrate the point that when one has a pervasive, constant enemy, which was for me a horse, there's a desperate need to cry out for help. But who is the cry to be directed to? What is the distress or discouragement or affliction that's, that's causing me to believe and do and act out in that circumstance? Is there someone who will hear and enter in that affliction to help, to save, to remove? So in the moments of our lives, we will be threatened and discouraged by an enemy, and we won't see a path forward. What are we to do in these threatening circumstances? Well, today we're going to look at a psalm, uh, Psalm 5. It's a, a psalm of David, and it falls within the first book. There's five books organized in, in psalms, so it falls in the first book. And generally speaking, book one of the psalms covers a lot of David's path and his journey to become king. It has a lot of prayers that come from him in the wilderness as he's waiting to be anointed. And in particular, as we look at the grouping of psalms right around Psalm 5, we see that there's a theme of distress. So in Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm 6, all of them have an a imminent distress of the moment that leads David to, to call out to God. In Psalm 5, we see that there, he has an enemy. We see that there's a threat, but we don't know what's imminently upon him. And so it seems that there is a distress of some kind of ongoing circumstance, some ongoing threat to his life. So we're going to look at this psalm this morning, and um, as you'll see in the inscription, it is a psalm of David. So we're going to look at the psalm, and there's three truths about God 
that I, I want for us to remember in our distress. The first truth we'll talk about is that God hears our cries. So God hears our cries. The second truth is that God will bring justice in His timing. God will bring justice in His timing. And the third truth is that God provides refuge that leads to joy. So God provides refuge that leads to joy. So as we open our Bibles, um, if you want to find Psalms, just open to the middle and you'll probably get lucky and find it. So um, read verses 1 through 3 here. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So in these first three verses, we look at the point that God hears our cries. So in the opening verses, David starts off with some strong and desperate pleas. In these first three lines, you'll see they each begin with an imperative. And imperative, imperative is basically a declaration, a demand to be heard, an emphatic request um, for, for God to come and hear him and deliver him. And so he says, give ear to my words. That's the first one. He says, consider my groaning. And groaning here, this, this isn't like the full body groaning of, I, I have no words. This is more like the groaning that comes as a whisper, as a muttering, as a talking under our breath. So he's considered my, my groaning as he's talking and, and, and laying out his thoughts before God. And then the third one here is he gives it, he says, give attention to the sound of my cry. And so these together, they, they show a humble posture of David and right below, we see that he says, give attention to my cry, my king and my God. So here's David, the one who is anointed king, and he's recognizing God as his king. So we see a, a reverence, a submission to the authority of God. But then the second term, he says, my king and my God. That term of God is, is kind of the equivalent that we hear in the New Testament of Abba, an intimate term for father. So David cries out to one who is in power and authority, his king, but he also cries out to his father. And so with, with these things, he says, for to you I pray. So David is taking this full-bodied prayer of, we see of his words, of his mutterings, his groanings, his cry for help. And in, these are three different angles that kind of fill in one prayer, one desperate claim to, for God to come and hear him. And so as we, as we think about this, how, how do you think about prayer? Is prayer something that you do in church? That perhaps is done in a small group? We pray at a meal. Maybe you pray over a devotional time. Or do you think about prayer as being directed to God in many forms of words and non-words? Words and mutterings and cries out for help. Is prayer something that is conscious and unconscious for you? For David, it seems that prayer is his lifeline. It seems that prayer is his oxygen. His, it's how he breathes and relates to God. And we see that prayer comes in many forms. And so in his desperation, we see his prayer coming in those many forms. So in his desperation, amidst his distress, he pours out his heart and he believes that God hears him. And we have indication of that in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So here he says, he seems assured. He says, you hear my voice. He seems assured that God, Yahweh, creator of the universe, hears his voice. And then we see this a repetition of in the morning two times. We see that there's an eagerness as David seeks God. There's an eagerness to rise early, to be heard. But also, perhaps there's a, a persistence. 
It's interesting in these grouping of psalms, there's a number of references to both the night and the morning and the need for sleep. And so you can imagine that there's many late nights where David, surrounded by an enemy with a threat of Saul, is praying that he would just live to the morning and make it through the night. But here we find him on the other side. We find him in the morning, rising early. Perhaps his distress has carried him through the night, but he's rising early and coming to God in eagerness, but also in persistence. She says, in the morning, he's heard, and in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. So here, if, if you look at this verse and you see a, a footnote on your Bible, it might say, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice, or in the morning, I direct my prayer to you. The, the language here is that it's in the morning, he prepares, um, uh, he prepares for God. Sacrifice is something that's, that's added there, because often if, if someone were to prepare something, they would prepare an altar, prepare a sacrifice. But it doesn't, doesn't say that specifically here. But either way, the, the point isn't lost. Whether sacrifice or prayer, it doesn't really matter. For the Old Testament, a sacrifice would be how they would come and approach God and hear from him, hear from him to bring and, and approach him in the way that he's to be approached. But for us in the New Testament... We, we approach God as the living sacrifice through Christ who is the true living sacrifice who put himself on the cross. And so the point stands that we, can, we are to eagerly seek God with a true heart. So David, he's in the morning, he's preparing a sacrifice. He's praying, he's surrendering, sacrificing his life in worship. And then what? And I love these next two words. It says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I love this because watch implies that we are to wait on God with eager expectation for how he'll answer our prayers and meet us in distress. If he were to be actually doing a sacrifice at that point, he'd He'd be waiting to see, is God going to answer? Is God going to respond? Is he going to give some direction here? But even if, if it's a prayer, we can think about this in the, in the, in the context of David's life. What, what does it mean to watch? What does it mean for David to wait? How long did it take from when David was anointed king until he actually sat on the throne as a king? It took like 10 to 15 years. <laughs> That's a lot of waiting, right? How much time of that was spent in the wilderness on the run for his life? Well, roughly, that was seven to ten years. How many prayers of distress did David direct towards God? Have you read the Psalms? It seems that he's in a chronic state of distress and panic and pouring out his heart before God. And there's a constant waiting and watching for God to respond that David models for us. And so if David, he was, he was good at two things. He was good at winning battles, and he was good at praying in distress. And so there, there's something for us to see and, and to pay attention. So watch, wait. These are important words for the Christian because it might be that God has determined to not answer our prayer in the manner that we desire. It may be that he momentarily will not remove the external threat causing our distress. But here, because of David's confidence, we can also have confidence and be assured that God hears our prayers and that he hears our cries of distress. And in our life, I think there's, there's a lie that we can be tempted to believe that, that God does not hear us, that he's not pleased to answer. And so in the watching, in the waiting, the silence, it discourages us. And in that discouragement, there's really a couple ways we can go. One, we can take the prideful route where we say, well, I'm, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. If God's not going to answer... I'll get an answer. Let's go. That, that might be one route. 
Or in the silence, it might be that we just fall into despair. We give up hope. We believe there to be no God. But in both of these, there's a lack of faith that God hears us, that God will answer our prayers. I was encouraged recently just uh, spending time with a brother and sister in our, our church yesterday. And uh, this brother gave me permission to share this, but he, he was talking about how he's been in a season of, of recent doubt, a struggle, believing, am I saved? Does God have me? And in this, he, he felt drawn to begin in these evenings spending time in prayer, spending 30 minutes to seek the Lord. And as he did this one evening, he prayed, he cried out to God, he asked for God to, somehow to know that God hears him. No answer that night. Goes to bed. Well, next morning, um, wakes up, and uh, his fiance comes to him, and uh, that morning she'd been listening to a sermon on, on Daniel 10:12, and she heard these words. Said, "Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." So her not knowing anything that he prayed the night before, heard this passage and was just thrilled by it and had to go share it with him. And when, he sh and when she comes and shares with it with him, it's a direct response to the prayer and request that he had the night before. And I, I share this as an encouragement that God is pleased to hear. He hears the answer, or he hears the cries of our distress, and he's pleased to answer. Now, not all prayers are going to be answered in this manner and this quickly, but the point is that God will... God hears, and he, he will answer in his perfect timing. And what our call is to do is to prepare the sacrifice of our lives, to prepare a prayer, and to watch, to wait, believing that God will answer. So our, our, our takeaway from this first point is that we are to cry out to God, believing that he hears us, though it will often have much waiting, much watching. God hears our cries. We can hold on to that promise. The second promise comes in uh, the next section of, of uh, Psalm 5, uh, yeah, Psalm 5, 4 through 10. And so the second idea we'll look at is that God will execute justice in his timing. God will execute justice in his timing. Verse 4 starts off this way. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In this next section, we're provided with more clarity as to the problem or the reasons why David is crying out. We see that he's crying out due to evil and wickedness that surrounds him, coming in the form of an enemy. And through this next section, it's very interesting the order and manner in which David prays for relief from his enemies. He does it in two parts. The first part is he reflects on the nature and character of God and God's relationship to evil and wickedness. And then the second part, which we'll see in a few minutes, he prays a bold prayer against his enemies. So how, how does David reflect on evil? How is evil contrary to God's character? Well, in those verses we just read, we see that uh, God does not delight in wickedness. He wants nothing to do, it, do with it. Wickedness is not his heart. It's not his desire. He doesn't delight in it. In the next line we say, Evil may not dwell with you. And one thing I, I was helped with is dwell also is the same word we would get sojourn, right? And so if you have a sojourner, you have someone from a different land that comes into a foreign land. 
So as we think about that evil doesn't dwell, it doesn't sojourn with God, one, we see that evil, evil has no right place. It doesn't originate from God. It comes from somewhere else. And though it desires to come from somewhere else, because God is so holy and perfect and pure, evil cannot enter and rest and dwell or sojourn in his presence. So evil's not of him, and it cannot be near him. And he goes on to say, the boastful may not stand before you. So we see that the proud are not given free access to the presence of God. And we also see that the origin of evil is pride. So we're seeing a few things about the character of God here. And then we come to this especially hard one, depending on how we hear it. He says, you hate evil doers. This is a strong word. What, what does it mean that God hates evildoers? Well, on the one hand, God does not hate people because he's created all mankind in his own image. And so we, we often use a phrase along the lines you guys are familiar with, hate the sin but not the sinner, right? And this is helpful to get around the problem to say that all people are created in the image of God and have a dignity. And so we need to hold on to that. But it's only helpful to a degree because I think sometimes we lessen God's hate of sin. So on the other hand, the reality is that God hates sin so much that one day he will bring it to an end. And if we play that out, if we think about it, the sin will not be judged separate from the sinner. Sin and sinner will be judged together because sin stems from a heart, an unbelieving, prideful heart that does not recognize God as God. There is no separating the sin from the sinner. They are one and together. And sadly, both the collective soul and body of a person if not in Christ, will be sentenced to hell. This is serious. And this should be alarming that God hates evildoers. Evildoers run, or evildoers run contrary to a holy and perfect nature of God. Evil is contrary to how God designed mankind and the world to function. And I think there, there's a need that we need to be aware that we don't soften, soften the end result of sin and sinner and God's stance towards that, which is death and separation and eternal judgment. Now again, we, we need to be careful here. This is not to say that God enjoys hating sinners. We see in 1 Timothy that, that God desires, we see a desire his heart that all people would be saved. But there's something about his character, his nature, that cannot do with sin. And it has to be reckoned with in some form. So these, these are hard words that I think we need to feel. And I, I hope that as we see God's hate for sin, Part of our maturity as a Christian, too, is that we hate sin. We don't want to see it remain in our life and the world around us. We want it to be done away with. So in this passage, we see two other brief comments. It says that God, it says, you destroy those who speak lies. So destruction is at the end of falsehood, and that the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He abhors the man of blood and deceit would be a more rigid translation of that. And again, this is strong language to reveal God's attitude towards sin and evil and wickedness. So why, why is David painting a picture of this? Let's, let's keep going. It's, it's as if David has his foot increasingly pressing down on the gas pedal to show us something of the character of God and his response to evil. 
But then when we come to verses 7 and 8, it's like he, he momentarily pulls it off for a second for something for us to consider. What does verse 7 say? It says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. So David recognizes that he himself will not enter the house of God. He will not enter the presence of God except by the abundance of God's steadfast love. David's posture here is not a self-righteous pride, but one that recognizes how he'll enter the house. And it's by the grace and love of God, nothing that he brings himself. And so then the humble spirit of David calls upon God, and we see another, another imperative here. He says, verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. So though David desires to enter before God in his steadfast love, he is still in distress. And it is his humility that helps him to identify his need for leadership and direction. So he actively calls God to lead him in righteousness. He pleads with God again with another imperative. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. What an example of rightly ordered prayer and dependence on God. And you can feel his desperation. And this is the first point that we see that the his concentrated focus is there's an enemy that's against him. And he's asking God to come and to lead him. He's asking God to give him a path that is straight, a path that he can follow. But notice, it's not, he's not asking for his path. He's asking for God's path, your path. Show me the way. Show me how I should go forward. And Oh, that we would align ourselves with that kind of heart independence on God. A heart that cries out, calls for him, that watch, watches, that waits for him to lead, to make known the path that we would follow it. But as we go on, we see that David's not done. And here, after pulling his foot off the gas pedal, he, he puts it back on again, and he utters a, a very bold prayer that seems to demand justice from God. 9 and 10, he says this, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. So in light of David's enemies and whatever the circumstance is, he prays this bold prayer to see their wickedness and then to address two, to request two very serious things from God. He expands on the evil and wickedness of his enemies, revealing their internal depravity as it's manifested through their mouths, their hearts, their throat, their tongues. Notice where the evil is. It's not on their members and their hands. It's inside them. It's oozing out of them. They're, these people, his enemies, they're not about truth. They're destructive in the end. They're representative of an open grave. All that they say, they do, all that they're about, will result in sure death. They are deceptive. They build other people up, trying to get them to drop their guard so they can pull the pin and see them fall. This is the wickedness of these enemies that surround David. So then David, in the form of two more imperatives, prays a bold, shocking prayer. First, Make them bear their guilt. He wants their guilt, their shame, their wickedness to be exposed, to be seen. For them and for the world around them to be forced to acknowledge that this is wrong. 
He wants to, to cause their evil plans and counsels to backfire. He prays that the wickedness would result and show its real fruit, which is their own destruction. And he backs that up in the second imperative here of cast them out. He says, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Cast them out, we could understand, is expel, eliminate, judge, destroy. It's the same kind of language where Jesus talks about being cast out into utter darkness. And David prays, prays a deeply serious prayer here. He emphatically requests and even demands that in accordance with the nature of God, that God would bring justice on these evil and wicked enemies. And the question I want to ask is, can David do that? Can we do that? Does it feel kind of wrong to actually pray for the destruction of another? Yet, this prayer has a place in Scripture and is often labeled as what we would call an imprecatory prayer. What, what is an imprecatory prayer? Well, to imprecate is to swear, to curse, to blaspheme. And so when we think about this as a prayer, it's, it's not that we swear or curse somebody ourselves as if we have any authority, but it's rather a prayer that goes before God demanding of judgment and justice where evil and wickedness is unchecked. It's a call to act, for God to act and to bring the wicked to account for their evil. And we, we see this, a number of psalms have this kind of language, and we have to reckon with it because it's there in the Bible, and it seems it's acceptable. Well, there's a wrong way and a right way to come about this. And the, the wrong way is if you or I were to enter in and pray, uh, to pray out of our own self-righteous anger, to demand justice for ourselves. That's the wrong way. When we see ourselves as the primarily offended party and we take actions into our own hands with an unbridled anger, that is wrong. And that's not what an imprecatory prayer is. But the right way is what we see what David has done here. David, he's prayed in relation to the character of God. And he's acknowledged how evil and wickedness are a violation of that. He asks that God would act on behalf of his holy name. Not David's, but God's holy name. And we need to remember that in all sin, in all wickedness, God is the chiefly offended and blasphemed one. He is the one most offended by sin. And if we are his children or his anointed, then when we are acted against, it is actually an offense against God. To attack the child of a king is to attack the king himself. Now, who, whose job is it to defend the name and honor and the kingdom of a king? Is it the kid's job to do that? No. It's the king's job to do that. The king himself is the one who determines when and where and how justice will be executed. And interestingly, as his children, we have every right to request, and even as David does, to somewhat demand that he act on behalf of his holy name. But in the end, it's his responsibility, not ours. So this comes back to the watch piece that we mentioned earlier. We need to have the humility and faith to believe that God will do this. We also, uh, but also we need to remember that he has much greater purpose in mind as to why he allows evil and suffering and distress. 
that persist as long as they do. And this morning, we just finished up in one of our life training classes a book on Job. Job is an incredible example of this principle and point that God has way more things going on than we are aware of. And as people, we are missing so many pieces to the puzzle. And he will account to it. God has determined the boundaries of evil. But there's a mystery there. We don't know why. We don't know what. But in, in the end, he doesn't tell Job why. He tells Job, I am God. Trust me. Rest in me. Don't take the place of God thinking you know better. So we must watch and wait, though the why question may not have an answer. So in light of that, what are we to do when we are in distress, when we are afflicted by an enemy or enemies? Well, as we've seen, our first priority while in distress is to ask God to lead us and to make his path straight. We need to cry out to him, ask him to lead, ask him to give a path forward when we don't know which way to go. But then secondly, our second priority while in distress, and especially at the hand of injustice and wrong evildoers, it's right and appropriate to ask God to expose, to collapse, to expel the wicked enemy in order that the rebellion might be made known. We're, we are given permission to pray in the, in the character of God's name that he do that. But resting, knowing that he will do that when he sees best fit. So we think about these priorities, and I want to make a side comment, um, just recognizing that there is a lot of evil and wicked that happens in this world. And I'm also recognizing that there's probably a lot of evil and wicked that's happened to some of us in this room right now. Now, the, the principles of asking God to lead and to ask him to suppose, that's important. We need to pray that regardless of what, no matter what. But if you find yourself in an oppressive, evil situation and someone is breaking the law, God has also given us, the common grace, the common mercy of government, that those things can be checked. So when we, when we hear these, you know, these, what do we do in distress? Yes, let's pray. Let's ask God to lead. Let's, let's ask that he would expose. But also, there's a love and a care that if something is wrong, we report. God has put this government in place to help keep evil back to some degree. And we should use that and trust that and not just think this is a personal battle that I need to keep enduring, especially where legal, legal harm and physical boundaries are being crossed. So that's, that's an encouragement as we find us or we inter, find ourselves in, in terrible situations or work with others that we have a justice system by the grace of God to rest in that. But we still need God to lead and to expose, and so we pray along those lines. It's not wrong to pray according to the character of God and to ask for justice. The challenge here is that when we make ourselves the center of morality and justice rather than God, and in the end, amidst our distress, sometimes we are tempted to believe the lie that God will not or cannot execute justice. We get tired of, of waiting and then begin to believe the lie that God's, he's not powerful, powerful enough. We begin to believe that he doesn't actually see what's happening. We begin to believe that he doesn't care. And at the worst logical end of that, we believe that he doesn't even exist because why would a good and powerful God allow this to happen? But here we can have confidence that by the very nature and character of God, we can cling to the promise that God will bring justice in his timing. And so we can pray accordingly. So our, our, our takeaway is that we are permitted to pray these kinds of prayers for justice and judgment and to request that God would act on behalf of his holy name. And we're to wait and watch and endure as we can. So some of you might be thinking, 
If I'm hearing you correctly, God will one day bring justice. But do you know how bad it is right now? Is there any help to me right now if justice isn't going to come right away? Well, praise God that he's given us these last two verses because there is an answer. 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So this third point, God provides refuge that leads to joy. He says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. So first of all, all, this is an open invitation. Let all who take refuge in God rejoice. So there's an open invitation there. But note the order. All All who take refuge rejoice and sing for joy eternally. And again, the same order. And you will spread protection over them that they may exult in you. So we see, as one takes refuge, that leads to joy. As one is protected by God, that leads to an exultation, a a praise coming off of our mouth, a rest in God. He says, for you bless the righteous. What is the blessing? You cover him with favor as with a shield. You crown him with favor as with a shield. That God, his righteous, his people, who are coming to him on behalf of his steadfast love, that he puts a shield, a big old body shield around them, and he protects them and cares for them. So as we think about this protection, it rings true on on two levels. One, it rings true on the eternal level. And we see this in the second part of verse 11. It says, let them ever. And what that means is for eternity. Let them sing in joy forever, for all eternity. The steadfast love of God secures his children an eternal destiny of endless joy. And this eternal blessing will overshadow everything one day that is so wrong and perverse and corrupt and that has been experienced in this life. It will overshadow all of that. And so we can see that uh, there, there is an, an eternal, there's an eternal sense in which God will preserve and care and protect us from his wrath. Secondly, this rings true circumstantially. And so in light of this return, eternal reality, we are provided security in the different moments of our life that we find ourselves. The fact that God hears our cry, that he will one day execute justice, that he is our eternal refuge, That leads us to pray and cry out all the more. Knowing that he's very pleased to remove the threatening enemy away from his child. And if he doesn't momentarily, we can know that as we entrust ourselves to the refuge of God, that he he hates evil and he will do away with it. There's joy to be found in the momentary refuge of God. Read the Bible and some of the circumstances that people of the Bible have had to go through, the hardships they've had to endure. And the only reason they've been able to do that or the ones that have done that well is because God has been their refuge and he has given them a joy, a peace, a comfort in the moment. So we have an eternal security that gives us a hope and a presence of God in the temporary And we need to beware of the lie that we tend to believe that God is not able to meet us in our distress. God is, and he does. May we cry out to him and watch and wait. God's heart is for the oppressed and those who humbly, desperately call out to him. The enemy may be able to harm our flesh, but cannot touch our soul. As we cry out to God, he will meet us as a refuge of peculiar joy in our distress and circumstances. So we're to actively seek refuge in God, trusting that God will both, uh, he'll bring eternal and circumstantial relief 
from our distress. So as you near the end and attempt to land the plane here, there's one last question that I want to ask for us to think about. Who is the enemy? Who's the enemy in this passage? Who's the enemy for us? Well, in this psalm, it's not entirely clear who the enemy is because David doesn't share any of the specifics regarding the circumstances in which he penned these words. And as with many psalms, I I think it's helpful if we read the psalm as if Jesus were the original author himself. He certainly prayed many of these psalms throughout most of his life. And we're also told that all of Scripture anticipates the life and work of Jesus. So as Jesus prays this prayer, who might the enemy be? I think the first and obvious answer is Satan, right? There's been a cosmic war since the beginning of time of Satan and his angelic hosts that have rebelled against God. They've risen up against him. And so with clarity and I think simplicity, we can say the enemy is Satan. And we can rec- real, that's true for us too. Our real enemy is not flesh and blood, blood though sometimes it's presented as flesh and blood. And Satan knows that if he can get us to doubt just one of these truths, if he can get us to doubt that God hears our cries, if he can get us to doubt that God will not bring justice in his timing, we can get us to doubt that God will not provide refuge that leads to joy, then he's got the upper hand. And doubt is one of Satan's greatest tools. And this is especially true in the Western world in which we even just have a hard time identifying an enemy. And if we can't identify the enemy, it probably means we're losing. <laughs> it probably means he's having his, his way. And so here, I think Jesus would en- identify the enemy as, as Satan. But next question, is Satan the only enemy that Jesus would have in mind? In Romans, who is it that exchanged the glory of the immortal God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator? Who is it that nailed Jesus on the cross? It's those that have rebelled against God, the workers of evil. So as we think about another way to answer this question, who is the enemy? The enemy is us. We are helped by Paul because he quotes part of this passage in Romans, which is addressing both Jews and Gentiles, so everybody, all humanity. And here's what Paul says, and you'll notice a couple lines in here. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lip, lip, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and, the paths, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul pulls a series of statements from the Old Testament to string together here to tell us something about the sin nature of man. And this passage indicates that we are born with corrupted hearts that don't by nature seek God. We don't by nature fear him. So as Jesus prays this prayer, this imprecatory prayer could be prayed against us. Let that sink in. This passage displays a stark contrast between the abundance of God's steadfast love that allows one to enter the presence of God and the abundance of transgressions that casts one away from his presence. And earlier we determined that God hates evildoers. But think about it this way. Jesus became the object of hate so that we might enter the presence of God. 
It is only by the steadfast love of God and the person of Jesus that David or you or I can enter the house before him. Anyone in Christ, not in Christ has much to fear, but for those who us who have found him to be a refuge, there's great security. God's love is a much stronger attribute than his hate. If you read that passage and you only see that, oh man, God really hates, that must be really central to his identity. No. God really loves and it is his hate and his care for justice and his holy name that we see that at the core of that is a love that's jealous that for his people, that he can only, people will only find satisfaction in life and in, in his presence, in connection to him. Because he's a God full of love. So love is a way more stronger attribute than hate. It's love that sent Jesus onto the cross to become the object of hate that we might live. We were once an enemy, but now through Christ we can enter his presence through his steadfast love. So let us believe these promises that Jesus hears our cries, that Jesus will one day execute justice, that Jesus is the only refuge that leads to joy. And if you are in Christ, you have no enemy to fear because God has heard your cries. God has brought justice through the person and work of Jesus. And God is the one who hears and protects Jesus, our only hope is you. Let's pray together. Father, we are a lost and needy people apart from you. Lord, not seeking you on our own. And Lord, we are so thankful that you provided us a Savior. Lord, a Savior that would come and show your love for your people, your love for a lost world. But Lord, also that shows us your holiness, Lord, that you are not just going to let things slide, Lord. You have a better way of life. So Lord, would you help us long for that better way of life, that we would come near you, rest in you. See that, Lord, you are our refuge. You are our protector. And that, Lord, through Christ, we are protected for eternity and Lord, in your grace and mercy, you will meet us in the moment of our cry and answer, Lord, in one way or another, giving faith and endurance. So Lord, be, be with us as we sing the song and trust you as our only hope. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.